want to recommend you grab this book today. Um, Gentle and Lowly is the best book I've read in 10 years. Um, it is, uh, many of you have read it. Uh, we did a book study on it in a small group, um, I think last year or so, or a year before last when it came out. Um, we were able to get 200 free copies um, from a gracious donor to Crossway who read the book and said, any church that signs up for this, I'll fund the paperbacks. So we got 200, we got four boxes of 50. That's enough for every member to have. If you already have it, feel free to give a copy away to a friend or family member. You don't have to read it uh, by yourself. Um, you may think, Pastor Mark, I haven't read a book in 10 years. You said that's the best book you read in 10 years. I haven't read a book in 10 years. Well, this might be your first book that you've read in 10 years because you don't have to read it on your own. You just come to prayer meeting on Wednesdays starting September 1st, and we're going to take a couple pages at a time. There's not a, a set schedule that we're trying to get through or anything like that. We're just going to take it. If you forget your book, it's okay. It's just a couple pages. So you can uh, listen along as we, as we go through. But I think it will be a deep, deep blessing to you. It's all about the heart of Christ for us as his people, especially in our sin and our suffering. So I encourage you to pick up that copy. It'll be available the next couple Sundays as well if you happen to forget. So pick up your copy of Gentle and Lowly. Now, um, we are at week three, like I said, of this uh, church series um, that we're calling uh, The Dearest Place on Earth. And the main focus of these four sermons, this is week three, but the main uh, focus of these four sermons is to help orient us to the reality that the local church is essential for our uh, Christian lives. And we've looked at the involvement, membership in the local church is essential to prove our faith. That was the first sermon. The second sermon last week was this, the local church is essential to prioritize our faith. And this week we're going to look at Hebrews 10 under the theme, the local church is essential for protecting our faith. Now, since we haven't already done so in the series, and it might have been helpful on the front end to do this, but I'll go ahead and do it now. We've not really defined church membership. What is church membership? Well, one of the best definitions that I have read comes from Jonathan Lehman in his book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. And there he defines church membership as this. It's got four parts. Church membership is one, a covenant union between a particular church and a Christian, a covenant that consists of, number two, the church's affirmation of a Christian's gospel profession. In other words, that they are a real Christian, as far as we can tell, based on their profession. Number three, the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian. And number four, the Christian's promise to gather with the church and submit to its oversight. So those, that's a helpful, I think, simple, relatively simple definition of church membership. It has four parts. Let me just talk about them quickly. Church membership, first of all, is a covenant. That is, it's an agreement that is voluntarily entered into by two parties. In this case, the Christian and the local church. Um, in this covenant, there are three things that take place. First, the church affirms the Christian's profession of faith in Christ. That is, either through baptism or in the case of Christians who have already been baptized, through their testimony of conversion to Christ, which is why we distribute testimonies and, and do baptisms. Because it's through that that the church is saying, as far as we can tell, you're a Christian. We're putting our seal of approval on your claim to follow Christ. And that's what church membership is. And that's why we write testimonies, submit testimonies, vote on testimonies, and baptize on the basis of these testimonies. And why, these why, why I think it's essential for the, this baptism to lead into church membership. Also a part of this covenant is the church promising to oversee the Christian's discipleship. Now we're going to look at that next week. Okay, we're, We've already seen the first part of the definition two weeks ago. Now we're going to look at the... Uh, the, the, the first part, sorry, let me say this. Church membership is covenant. The first part of the definition we looked at last week because I was trying to talk about what the church is in its essence and why it's necessary that a family gather and a body be, have, consist of members and the, and the temple have stones and that there's this interconnectedness between the church and the Christian. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of that definition, which is the church affirming the Christian's profession of faith in Christ. Now, this week, or sorry, next week, we're going to look at this part of the definition. The church promises to oversee the Christian's discipleship. That is, through teaching, through preaching, through elder oversight, through mutual oversight of each other, all the members of the church contribute to the discipleship of each other and help us to grow up into Christ's head, that is, into maturity in him. 
And then this week, we're going to look at the final part of that definition, which is the Christian promises to regularly assemble with the church. Now, by committing to a church through membership, an individual promises to regularly gather with this church and to, as it falls in line with the teaching of Scripture, which is what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. So this week, we're going to consider how the local church protects our faith. The aspects are mentioned in the above definition. Um, the church oversees the Christian's discipleship and the, the Christian regularly assembles with the church. But what happens when the Christian stops assembling with the church? Well, the oversight of the church's discipleship of that Christian is rendered moot. It's rendered moot. It's, it's put out of the context in which discipleship um, uh, can happen. Now, that doesn't mean that there's only discipleship that happens when we're all gathered together. Of course, that's not the case. But it is the primary way in which the whole church is discipled. Does that make sense? That's why it's unique, and that's why both are important. We need the whole church discipleship together, but we also need individual discipleship one-to-one um, -one or in small groups or in other, 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 kinds of uh, other kinds of gatherings. So what's happened is an, uh, when an unassembled Christian removes themselves from the means of teaching and preaching and oversight, they place themselves in a place of danger. And this is why a key aspect to protecting our faith is by assembling with the church when it gathers, whether those gatherings be on Sunday morning, Wednesday evenings, Lord's suppers, things like that. And when we fail to do that, we put our faith at risk. And with that in mind, we turn to the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews was written, as I trust many of you know, as a word of exhortation. That's the language that's used in Hebrews 13, 22. It's a word of exhortation, which means it, the book of Hebrews is printed, presented to us like a, a strong sermon that goes from preaching to meddling, as some people like to say. You know, get real specific and start pressing some of that truth home on our hearts so that we don't just say, yeah, that's right, but we say, oh, no, I, or oh, yes, I need to live in light of what's right. So it's written primarily, the primary audience um, of Hebrews is professing Christians who are in danger, either through persecution or personal neglect or something, maybe a combination of the two, to giving up their faith under the relentless pressures of the world around them. So I think this has a word for us. Um, we, are not, uh, we, are, we are presently somewhat uh, inoculated and immune from some of the external persecution that many of our brothers and sisters face around the world. I think about the Afghani church even this week um, facing serious, serious trial and persecution, even death um, as a result of uh, Taliban involvement in the country. And so we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in, in Afghanistan. But also in our own in our own. In our own culture, um, we, can, we can face this, this other sorts of temptations um, to, to give up or to, to, not, to not assemble, to not regularly gather. And, and we can do it for different reasons, but the temptation is the same. So as we come to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, I want to look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We're going to mainly focus on those two familiar verses under three headings. I want to look at the reality of not gathering with the church the consequences of not regularly gathering with the church, and the solution to not regularly gathering with the church. So reality, consequences, and solution. First of all, reality. Now we looked at this passage, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, a little bit last week, but this week we're going to look at it in some more detail. First of all, I want you to see something that I trust you've seen before, but maybe not fully appreciated. We see here that some... Now, it does say not all. Praise the Lord that not all of God's people fail to regularly gather. Otherwise, we would, uh, we would be meeting and singing and preaching and praying and uh, encouraging to a relatively empty space. But some, it says, are in the habit of not meeting together. So according to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, there will be people in probably every single local church who will make it a regular practice to not assemble with the church when it's meeting. They won't be there. You'll look for them. They won't be there. So the, the word that's used, and we need to recognize this is not a modern tendency, right? This is a 2,000-year-old Christian difficulty. 
all right? Which is why it was written in the book of Hebrews and not just the latest book by some church guru. So what's, set, what's said here is that these Christians who are in the habit of not regularly gathering do so by neglecting something. That's the word that's used, to neglect or to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, the word forsake in Hebrews 10.25 means willful neglect. Willful neglect. In Matthew 27.46, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you neglected me? Same word. Why have you forsaken me? The forsaken here, on Jesus' part, refers to the mysterious and horrific experience of being abandoned by the Father's delightful presence and in its place experiencing the full wrath of God for our sins. In 2 Timothy 2, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul refers to Demas who forsook him having loved this present world. Again, same word that's used in our, in our text. So forsaken is a strong word, isn't it? It's a strong word applying to Demas committing apostasy. It's a strong word describing what Jesus experienced on the cross at the hands of God the Father. So this word that is describing Christians who fail to assemble regularly together is a fearful word. It's a fearful condition in which to find yourself. And we're going to talk about some of those reasons as we go. It implies, though, willfully neglecting and abandoning someone, often for something else. It's deadly serious when a Christian begins to willfully neglect gathering with the church. It's to renounce or desert as in totally abandoning meeting together with Christians. One commentator says the word denotes the severing of connection. There's been a loss of personal contact. Now, let me be clear. Inability is not willful neglect. Unable and unwilling are two very different things. There are times when we cannot and should not physically gather with the church. The early months of the pandemic and even some of the ongoing challenges that we're facing in the pandemic are certainly some of those times as we deal with an uncertainty of ongoing variants and this novel, highly contagious virus. There are other, though, more routine times that we should not gather, like when one in our household is just generally sick, especially if we have a sick kid or a sick baby that's going to be in the nursery, or if we have to cancel our services due to snow, or a member can't forsake the assembly, right, if that assembly doesn't exist, or they are unable to do so. So that's not what I'm talking about here. Where there is no gathering, there's no neglect of gathering. Where there is no ability to attend the gathering, there is no neglect of the gathering. A church, and church leaders aren't sinning when they cancel gatherings simply because we're unable to host them for various reasons. Instead, this passage talks about those who sin deliberately by renouncing Christians and Christ through habitually abandoning meetings with believers. So since not all non-attenders are the same, we should treat different kinds of non-attenders differently. So let me give you some different categories that we need to be thinking of. First of all, those who live among us, or those among us who live in the area and are unable to attend due to age or health that prevents them, I'm not talking to about them or to you about them in the sermon. All right? Elderly and physically suffering members should be treated with special care. This point isn't about them. Also, those who live temporarily outside of our area and are unable to attend by virtue of the military or school or business assignments or being out of town for work or things like that, such temporary, and then the key word's temporary there, Temporary non-attendance is not tre it's treated again with special care since travel for work places unique burdens on the Christian and the Christian's family. So that point again is not, this point is not about them either. Also, there are those who live outside of the area, but who are not doing so temporarily, but choose to keep their membership with our local church, but distance prevents them from doing so. 
Now, such non-attenders, we would encourage, and we have encouraged, to join a local church where they can attend. And this is about them. Dear people, perhaps especially thinking of college students or long-standing people who have departed from us, families that have moved away. Now, praise the Lord, many of those families, some of them are in unique circumstances, many of those families recognize the importance of local church membership, and they have transferred their membership to the place in which they live, and that thrills our hearts as pastors. It should thrill your heart as church members, because that's what's best for that person, to be deeply engaged in the life of a congregation they can physically attend, not virtually watch or not occasionally come to when they happen to be in town. There can be extenuating circumstances where a college student goes away but not too far, or a family moves away but not too far, they're home regularly, they can meaningfully remain engaged in the life of the congregation. I'm not talking about those situations. But when that is not possible, a membership transfer should be the number one priority of an individual or on, an, or on a family's mind. Why? Because those school matters, jobs matter, homes matter, Souls matter more. Souls matter more. And we can simply not give you the encouragement you need from a distance. Because biblically speaking, listen to me, you can't encourage people you don't see. That's the Bible. And we're going to see it this morning. You can't encourage people you don't see in the most biblical way. Of course, we can send texts, we can make phone calls, but you can't encourage people in the fullest biblical way who you don't see regularly. So it requires physical presence. So no pastor is gifted enough or a congregation loving enough to help you spiritually enough that doesn't see you enough. You need a local church that you can physically gather with and build close relationships with in your life, in your community that you're living in. That's why going forward, we will not endorse or encourage extended and protracted times of continued membership for those who move away. It doesn't serve them. It doesn't serve us. Their intention to continue to support our church financially must not trump our desire to care for their soul in the most biblical way possible. Finally, a third category of people is those who live in the area and sporadically or infrequently attend with nothing really preventing them except their own willful neglect. And this sermon is about them. All right? So, those are the categories. I hope that's helpful. I hope it's gracious. Because we don't need to view every single Christian life or every single circumstance in exactly the same cookie-cutter way. All right? We all have various extenuating circumstances that need to file into this understanding of what it means to habitually neglect the gatherings of the church. So that's point number one. That's the reality. Second, let's come to the consequences. Now, thinking about those who are unwilling to regularly gather with the church, not those who are unable to do so. We want to look at what the text says about the consequences of that choice. The consequences are stated clearly. I want to show you several of the consequences. First of all, by not gathering with the church, a Christian removes themselves from being stirred up to love and good works. Do you see that in verse 24? Look there again where the writer says that we are to stir, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet. So obviously, the writer says, the primary, the maximal way in which we can stir one another up is by meeting together. And when we're not meeting together, we're not getting the fire stoked. My kids and I and, and Katie were talking about, sometimes on Saturday evenings when we're having dinner together, I'll ask the kids what I'm preaching on tomorrow, and, and we'll turn to the passage, and we'll talk about it. And uh, the illustration I used with them last night is when we, like, come to a church campfire, right, a camp bonfire, and they get real fired up about the s'mores, real fired up about those. That's the first thing they want to eat. We say, no, get a hot dog in you first. Come on, don't, don't go for the s'mores. We don't need a s'mores dinner. Um, but, but they really want the s'more, and they put the, put the uh, you know, marshmallow on the stick, and they stick it over the fire, and, you know, if it's been sitting there a little while, it gets really hot and sometimes quite burned, but they pull it out and they're trying to handle it, ouch, 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 you know, trying to get it off. It's like, use the crackers, that's the key, you know, you could get the cracker off right, don't take it with your fingers. Um, but then they set the, you know, set the rod back down on the table so somebody else can use it or whatever, and what happens to that rod after 15 or 20 minutes? 
Somebody kid going to walk up and grab it and go, ouch, 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 ouch. No, they don't do that. Why? Because it's had time to cool off, right? It's been separated from the fire. Brothers and sisters, that's what happens when Christians willfully neglect the assembly. They've taken themselves out of the fireplace. They've put themselves out in the cold, and they're going to get progressively colder. Um, and so they, the only way to, to stay hot is to stay really close to the fire, keep coming back to the fire, keep getting around the fire, right? That's what the text says. Got to stir one another up. See, you got to stir the fire up. You got to poke it when it's getting weak. We need that, according to Hebrews, daily, but especially we need it every week of our lives, which is why the Lord's day is so important for us to gather on as God's people. So they... So what happens is we remove ourselves from the context in which we can be stirred up to love and good works, but we also remove ourselves from being and giving encouragement to other brothers and sisters who need to be stirred up to love and good works. See, we not only gather to be encouraged, but we gather to encourage. And the obvious implication is that we all need this. The text says we need this not less as we go on in the Christian life, because we get more mature, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see that? It seems like, huh, the the closer it gets to the the coming of Christ, the more it will be harder to be a Christian. I think Jesus said that. Because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Brothers and sisters, is lawlessness increasing all around us? How do you expect to survive as a Christian? without the local church. If lawlessness increases and the love of many will grow cold, how do you know you're not going to be among that many? Well, you know you're not going to be among that many because you don't neglect the habit, or don't neglect regularly gathering with the church and don't make it a habit of not doing so. So we don't reach a spiritual plane in our lives where we no longer need to be stirred up and encouraged. We all do till our dying day. Until Christ returns, believers will need to regularly assemble in local churches in order to do this. Now, note in verse 26 why this stirring up and encouragement is so important. Look at verse 26. And it's meant to be connected, not just because it follows, but because of the word for. Right? So we see in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, in verse 26, we are told that if we don't gather to be encouraged and to be an encouragement, there is a strong possibility that we will go on sinning. Interestingly, the author makes the point clearly here that the refusal to gather is itself sin, right? Because he says, go on sinning already sinning by not failing to regularly gather, because that's a clear apostolic command in the New Testament, but you're going to go on in that habitual pattern of sinning if you don't stop it and return to the gathering. So interestingly, the author makes the point clearly that the refusal to gather is sin because the assumption is that those who don't gather will continue to go on sinning even as they have begun sinning and refusing to gather. So gathering helps us then to be stirred up to loving good works, which helps us not go on sinning, not deliberately take advantage of Christ, not think small of the cross, not treat grace as cheap, right? That's what all these things do when we gather. So as much as not gathering assists us in deliberately going on sinning, so gathering encourages us to not do so and prevents us from doing so. So what are the consequences of deliberately going on sinning? We'll look at verse 27, where we read, or sorry, yeah, verse 27, or 26, end of 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, is he saying Christians can lose their salvation? No, but he is saying that we can live in such a way as to show that we never had it. In other words, by continuing to not regularly gather, professing Christians are revealing themselves to not be the Christians they profess to be. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. 
That's the way the Bible thinks. So Christians, gather with other Christians to out yourself completely, consistently, repeatedly, and unrepentantly from such gatherings is to call your profession of faith into question. Christians don't continue to sin deliberately, brazenly, and unrepentantly. We sin, yes, but we repent of sin. The writer's language couldn't be stronger. Don't think that the blood of Jesus applies to you if you continue to to unrepentantly neglect gathering with the church. The blood of Jesus does not apply to you. That's what he's saying. There is no forgiveness of sins for that person. Why? Because they're not in union with Christ. He doesn't say there's not the possibility of forgiveness. Of course there is. But he's saying this person is living like someone who has not received the forgiveness of sins. This person is living like someone who's an enemy of God. This person is living like someone who is, no, who is, who is only to be expecting a fearful expectation of judgment. This person is neglecting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and is outraging the spirit of grace. This person should say, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And that verse applies to people who neglect to gather with the local church consistently. That's who that verse is written to. We say, it's un- oh, it's, an, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unbeliever. It's talking to believers who are not regularly gathering with the church. That's the audience. Does that change the way you think about this? I hope so, because it's deadly serious. It's eternally serious. This is all so crucial for us. We need the encouragement and the edification of the church by removing ourselves. From it, we open ourselves up to continue in sin because by gathering, we're receiving the encouragement and the edification we need to pursue Christ and turn away from sin. So the consequences of not gathering not only contribute to the possibility that we will walk away from Jesus, but the failure to gather itself is a sign to both the non-gathering Christian and the gathered church that this brother or sister is already falling away from Jesus. It's not going to contribute to apostasy. It is apostasy. It is apostasy. It's not going to be apostasy. It is. We need to think of it as apostasy because that's what the Hebrews 10 says it is. Tom Schreiner explains, Refusing to meet with other believers in this context signifies apostasy, the renunciation of the Christian faith. If believers renounce meeting with other Christians, especially because they fear discrimination and mistreatment, they are in effect turning against Christ. So the consequences of not gathering could not be more severe. So with that said, we come to our third and final point, the solution to not regularly gathering with the church. We've seen the reality, seen the consequences. Now let's look at the solutions. Now, I've got two points of application for two different categories of people each, okay? I got two points of application for those of us who regularly gather, and this sermon is just more of like an announcement warning for us. It's not something that we're currently practicing or engaging in, but it's something that's good for our souls to hear, lest we drift, right? We need to be reminded, oh yeah, this is, this is good for me, even though, praise the Lord, I'm not in that situation right now, but I don't want to be in that situation. Okay, so I'm gonna, I have a, wor- a couple words for you. And then also I've got a couple words for those of us who are in the habit of not regularly gathering, who neglect to do so. So number one, let's talk about a word for those who regularly gather. First of all, I want to say, continue to gather. <laughs> continue to gather. Don't you love, I mean, you, you all pay me for this. And this, this is deep insight here, you know. It's like, continue to gather. Your persistence, discipline, but I want to say this. Your persistence, your discipline, Your commitment to Christ by regularly gathering with this church is commendable. You set an example for the believers to follow. And most of you are in this category. All right? Most, praise the Lord. You take scripture seriously. You live out our church covenant. You make evangelism easier because we're able to point to real Christians and show them what, to non-believers, what real Christians look like. You serve as a helpful role model for newer Christians so that we can encourage them to imitate you. Your presence encourages your brothers and sisters. It makes your pastor's labor a joy, and it glorifies God. So thank you so much for continuing. Now, if you feel like I do, even as a pastor, sometimes that that commitment is not as strong as it needs to be. It isn't. I want to encourage you to do what Hebrews 10 tells you to do, which is consider. 
All right? Consider. It says, first of all, consider how to love, stir up one another. Right? We're going to get to that in just a second. But first of all, I want you to consider Jesus. Okay? So when we start to lose heart about gathering, we need to refer to the other passages in Hebrews that use the word consider. Like Hebrews eleven nineteen, talking about Abraham. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. We say, man, what kind of faith is that? He, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what was going on in Abraham's mind? Okay, I'll do it, Lord, because I know that you're able to raise him from the dead. That is what was driving Abraham's faith. What about Moses? Well, in Hebrews 11, 30, 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. How was Moses able to give up all that riches and turn to suffer with the people of Israel and lead them out of Egypt? Because he considered Christ's reward greater than all the treasures of Egypt. What about Jesus? How was he able to endure? Well, Hebrews 12, 3 says he considered he, he consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus focused, too, on that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12.1 talks about that encouraged, and all those people for whom he was dying that moved him to embrace the cross. So, brothers and sisters, when we start to grow weak, we need to go back to these saints of old. We need to go back to Abraham. We need to go back to Moses. We need to go back to Jesus, and we need to say, these are my examples, and these have suffered more than I ever will, and they counted a greater cost than I will ever count. I will go to church, <laughs> right? I will be with God's people even when I don't want to. You think Abraham wanted to kill his son? You think Moses wanted to give up all of that to embrace that? Think Jesus wanted to leave heaven for earth? Yes, in the deepest sense, of course they did. Because they counted God as more beautiful and more valuable than all of those things. And brothers and sisters, that's the same thing that's going to get us to church. That's the thing, th same thing. It's not going to be, well, I feel guilty. Well, I know I'm not supposed to. Well, it's a command. Those are all good things. But brothers and sisters, we've got to get deeper. We got to get to Jesus. We got to get to Abraham. We got to get to Moses. We got to get to huge, big faith, right? Faith that, that, that trusts a great, awesome God. And so that's what I'm commending to us is that, and that God will, if he's able to help them in those sorts of situations, kill a son, leave Egypt, embrace the cross, how much more do you think he will help you to regularly gather? Right? So I want, I want you to be motivated by that, and I want you to be encouraged about that. So continue to gather. Secondly, consider others inside and outside the gathering. This is the primary application because this is the primary instruction that the writer gives to Christians who regularly gather. Right? Notice again, verse 24. He says to let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now he's saying that to people who are not regularly gathering too. But he's got it also in view to those who are probably in a gathering hearing this letter read to them, right? No live stream back in those days. Those who were in the habit of not gathering didn't hear Hebrews. Boy, that was a, that's a rough sermon to miss, you know? I missed an inspired sermon. You'll never miss that here. None of my sermons are inspired, but this one was. And they're like, man, I should have been there for that, you know? And they live on in eternity with that racking of guilt in their minds. No, of course not. But Hebrews 10.24 says to let us consider. That is, let all the Christians in the church consider how to stir up the Christian church. It doesn't just say let pastors consider. It doesn't say let deacons consider. It says let us consider, which is all of us. So this is a whole church job, not a leaders only job. All right. So the reclamation of an absent member is a congregational project, not just for those who are paid or elected to care. Our job as pastors is, yes, to exercise oversight, but one of the ways that we do this is by equipping you to exercise oversight. Ephesians 4 will be there next week. And our one aim in this sermon is to equip us all to consider how to be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters and both those of us who are regularly gathering and those who are not. So this is a God's call on all of us to consider one another, that is, to look at one another, to think about one another, 
to focus on one another, to study one another, and let your mind be occupied with one another. See, if the whole church is doing that, if everybody is thinking that way, everybody gets paid for. If it is consigned to a, the leadership or 20% of the people, imagine how taxed that is on their mind. And plus, they can't even extend themselves in ways that would be meaningful in that care. Because they're tapped out from the 30 other people they have met with and talked to about that. But if the whole church takes their one, two, three in their sphere, then the whole church gets cared for. You see that? It's God's wisdom. It's like, it's like what Jethro said to Moses, right? He said, hey, quit doing all this, man. You're going to die, and you've got to lead them into the promised land. And Aaron's like, yeah, I don't want you to die. I don't want to lead those people. Don't die, Moses. And so Jethro says, you need to divide this up. And you need to divide this up. You need to take care of each other. So is this the way that we engage with the gatherings of the church? Are we coming to the gatherings of the church considering, looking, thinking, focusing, studying, letting our minds be occupied with one another? Do you know who regularly gathers and who doesn't? Do you make it a point to pray for your brothers and sisters using perhaps our membership directory so you can get to know their names and their families? Do you make it your intention to thoughtfully pursue your brothers and sisters with timely encouragement as one of your main responsibilities at each gathering? This is our job, brothers and sisters. And what about those who have created the habit of not regularly gathering? Have we pursued them? Have we sought to stir them up to a good work of regathering? When you get up in the morning, consider, think about, ponder, deliberate, meditate, mull over other people with this conscious goal. What can I do today? so that other people will be stirred up to love and good deeds. This is another reason why we should strive, if possible, to come early and shouldn't immediately hit the doors after the service is over. That's prime encouragement time. Now, of course, we encourage one another through singing to each other, through praying together, through hearing God's word together, through reading God's word together. Yes, amen to all that. But also, when the service is over or when the service is coming in, that's a great opportunity to, to encourage So I know there can be extenuating circumstances. No judgment. No judgment for those who have to arrive late or head out early. Okay, we're not policing that. We're not looking at that. We're not not saying, oh, yeah, sure, you would leave early. I know why. No, we don't do any of that in the church. Kill that, kill that, kill that, kill that, kill that. Flash, 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 flash. Kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it, or it'll kill us. Okay, kill it. So we got to mortify that kind of stuff. But... Um, Some of us, and I want to speak a word especially to our beautiful young families that I love seeing every Sunday. I love hearing the babies. I love seeing the babies. I love the mom standing in the back with the babies. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And I want to give a word of encouragement to our moms and our our younger parents here. Um, uh, Some of us have young children, and you're barely able to make it here. You had a kid chuck stuff out the window. They were screaming. You were, you were like, get in the car. I don't care if you're going to church in a diaper. Get in there. You know, we've been there too. You're barely able to make it here. See, that's, now I upset one. Um, you can't stay much after. We know. They've got to get fed. That will neither be edifying for you or anyone else if you stay after. I get it. We get it. You need lunch. They need lunch. You need naps, right? They do too. We understand. We understand, okay? Just a word of encouragement to you who are in this stage of life. Your commitment to do the hard thing, to get up, get your kids ready, get in the messy minivan, endure a baby spilling their milk, a toddler pulling their sister's hair, a child checking, chucking their Bible out of the window onto 54, you still show up to church tired yet hungry, weary yet engaged. And God is pleased. God is deeply pleased with you. You might not be pleased with yourself. You're like, I wish I could sing more. I wish I could not have to leave so many times. We get it. But God is pleased with you. There is a tremend- you are a tremendous encouragement to this local body. Don't duck out on us. We love your babies crying. We, w- we love your babies. Don't duck out on us, okay? Because I know it's hard and it can be challenging. We love the baby noises. We love seeing you in the back or around the auditorium holding and caring for your little ones. It's a precious gift to our congregation, every single baby that's born. You're a precious gift to our congregation. I know we as a church haven't always made it easy for you as parents. We strive to have good child care and reflect a sensitivity towards you in this season of life. You give us grace. We give you grace. But we love you, and we're in this together. 
So, all that said, I've got to come quickly now to the last word. So, that was a word to those of us who continue to gather and regularly gather. Second, a word for those who neglect to regularly gather. Two things. First of all, understand the importance of regularly gathering. I hope this sermon has done that. Faithful attendance honors Christ and it builds up the church. Non-attendance moves in the other direction. It trivializes Christ's name and it harms his church in many ways. I want to give you seven quick ways that non-attendance, regular habitual non-attendance harms the church. First, not regularly gathering makes evangelism harder. Jesus said, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They need to see it in the congregation, people loving each other. By the, by, for the world to see our love, we need to regularly gather together. Everyone who bears the name of Christ, yet who willingly chooses to live their lives apart from the covenanted community, makes evangelism harder for Christians. Because we can't point to you as a faithful example. This is in part why the phrase, I am a Christian but not part of the local church, has become a category that actually gives professing Christians comfort. And why it's widespread in our day. And why it's gonna, it makes evangelism harder. It makes the ground harder. It makes genuine, the discerning between a genuine conversion and a false conversion harder. Second, not regularly gathering confuses new Christians. New believers need good models. When the doctrine they're taught doesn't sync up with the models they see in absenteeism, they become confused. They're led to believe that one can be a Christian and yet not have a connection with the church. A new member gets a directory after being admitted into the church through baptism and church membership. They begin flipping through it, and they begin visiting for a month, and they never see people that they're praying for. What does that do to a new Christian? So, like, there's two tiers of Christians then? Like, some tiers are in, and some, you know, some Christians are really committed, and then there's a second, like, a carnal Christian that can kind of live. No. No. Okay, so it confuses new Christians. Third, not regularly gathering discourages those who do gather. Because of absence, non-attenders cannot possibly know when or how the other members of their church community are burdened by sin or suffering. It removes the possibility of other Christians receiving encouragement from them. It hurts the body because we're deprived of their loving presence and friendship and fellowship. Fourthly, not regularly gathering causes leaders to lose sleep. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Like a father that's worried about their son who hasn't yet come home late at night, your pastors don't rest well until all our sheep are accounted for. Not gathering makes this task nearly impossible. If you have a strange delight in avoiding gathering with the church because it may cause people pain and draw people's attention to you, how does that attitude glorify God and reflect the spirit of Christ who did nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility counted others more significant than himself? Some Christians will duck out of a gathering to try to get the member's attention. That is immature, and it's, it shows a profound lack of the gospel being deeply embedded in your soul. Because you're not looking as a way to look at looking to serve, you're looking to be served. And the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve. Six, not regularly gathering hurts you spiritually. God has appointed specific means by which Christians can grow in their faith. And neglecting those means stifles our spiritual health. Hearing the word of God preached, singing the word of God in worship, taking the Lord's Supper, praying with God's people, serving the body of Christ are just a few examples of graces that are given to us that we might grow. But we mostly have to gather to do them. Not exclusively, but we have to at least do that. And it, if a track record of non-gathering should place some fear in our hearts then it should because it may reveal what Hebrews 3 says is an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. The way to prove that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart is don't fall away from the living God. And the way that you, first of all, not fall away from the living God is don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together with other Christians in the local church. Number seven, not regularly gathering, gathering opens up the possibility of church discipline opens up the possibility of church discipline. Excommunicating long-standing non-attenders, and I don't mean inconsistent attenders, okay? But those who have been wholly absent for several months or even years and have not joined another church is the mark of a healthy church. 
While it's essential to show extreme grace and great patience with weaker sheep, modeling the patience of our God, and realizing it takes time for preaching and teaching and conversations to sink in as the Word does its work and as the Spirit leads and convicts, nevertheless, it is right and proper to excommunicate members who refuse to regularly gather with the church. Excommunicating someone who has completely stopped attending is in effect giving them what they've already asked for. It's letting go of the rope that they're trying to pull out of our hands. It's not forcing them to remain bound by what they don't want to be bound by. At the same time, it's also refusing to let them force us to declare them to be a Christian in good standing by allowing them to remain in our membership when in good conscience we don't feel like we can. See, we discipline people for publicly walking away from Jesus, don't we? There are few things that are more public than non-church attendance. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Not everybody knows what sexual sin people are dealing with. Not everybody knows what sort of other private sins, but public, consistent, unrepentant sin is to be disciplined by the church, and non-attendance falls in that category. Again, listen to all the stuff I've said before, right? Not talking about inconsistency, not talking about inability, not talking about not showing grace and being patient. All that's the case. But one way we publicly walk away from Jesus, according to Hebrews 10, is by failing to regularly gather with the local church we have covenanted to be with. Did you notice the warning? Fearful expectation of judgment. Explain then to me how removing someone from membership is too severe. That's, that's the result. Imagine a non-attending church member arriving at judgment day and being told eternal judgment awaits them. And they think, wait, I was a member of Heritage. At that moment, how loving will our church seem who did nothing and who quietly deleted their name from a computer? Will that person not have a right to be angry at our church? Why didn't you warn me? Well, I am warning you, and we are warning you. In fact, our small, two-dimensional pictures of removal now may be the most loving thing we can do because they warn people of the potential permanent removal to come. Let me be clear. We're not saying you have to be a member of this church. I am not saying that. We are just, we just want you to be a member of the church you'll attend under elders that you trust with members you love. That's all. I just want, want, just want you in a church striving to be faithful to Jesus. But for the sake of your eternal soul, Find a church that you will regularly attend, and for God's sake and yours, join it. Finally, be committed to regularly gathering. Sorry, be, recommit to regular gathering. Hebrews 3.12 would tell you, take care. That is, give this special attention. By failing to regularly gather, you're missing out on encouragement, missing out on being spurred on to love and good works, but that's not all. You're missing out on, 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 from God's vantage point, your ability to work in the Christian life in other people's Christian lives. Your vantage point on God's work in the Christian life will begin to shrink. Your confidence in your confession of hope will wane. Your memory of God keeping his promises will fade. And your once clear-eyed vision of the coming day of the Lord will blur into black. Without the ministry of attendance, we cannot be known. And if we're not known, we can't be encouraged. And if we're not encouraged, we will not endure. We gather then in order to mutually encourage, and we encourage in order to mutually endure. So what if we don't feel like it? Well, let me conclude with this final word of encouragement, and then we're going to wrap up. This is the end of the Gunnar Gunderson booklet on what if I don't feel like going to church. And I've read it this week, and I was like, oh, that is so encouraging. I want to share that on Sunday. So I want you to listen. If you struggle, as we all do at various times, to, to gather, but specifically regularly gather, and it's become a habit. Perhaps it was a habit before COVID. Perhaps COVID has made it more so of a habit. I want to read you Gunner's words in conclusion. I know you might not feel like it this weekend. You might not feel like it for a while. The reasons you don't feel like going to church might be good, bad, or ugly, but as a fellow sheep loved by the same shepherd, I ask you to do this. Trust God, ask for grace, and go. 
Go, because the church gathers every Sunday to remember the death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that's precisely what we all need to remember and celebrate regardless of what else is happening in our lives. Go, because like Martha, you've been working all week, and like Mary, you need to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. Go, because the songs of the saints are the soundtrack of the Bible, and your soul needs to sing and hear singing more than you'll know. Go, because the Bible you'll hear tells the true story of the world, and the gathering of heaven's saints on earth is nothing less than the presence of the future. Go, because the gifts of Christ poured into your life didn't come with a receipt, and you have a happy duty to use those God-given tools to build up his spiritual house. Go, because even though your church has problems, your church also has a savior, a healer, a shepherd, and a friend. Go, because right there with you or somewhere far away, there's a brother or sister who's hurting or hungry or persecuted or imprisoned, and if your church family is worshiping, so can you. Go, because the world's been seducing your senses all week, but what you most need to see, hear, and taste and touch are the waters of baptism and the body and blood of Christ. But go because the rest you ultimately need is not just in sleeping in or getting out of town, but in recovering the gospel's promise that in Christ you're forgiven new and free. Go because the stone trapping you in the cave of anger or bitterness or despair or doubt or loneliness or fear can be rolled away in a night. And once God does it, no Roman soldier or Jewish priest can stop him. Go because the good news of the gospel is not just that you're reconciled to God, but that we're reconciled to each other. Go, not because your trials aren't real, but because their table, their, that table with bread and wine represents the crucifixion of the worst sins you could ever commit and the worst realities you'll ever experience. Go, and in your going, grow. Go, and in your going, serve. Go, and in your going, let God pick up the shards of your heart and piece together the kind of mosaic that only gets fully crafted when his saints stay committed to his long-term building project. The most important time to be at church is when you don't feel like it. So brothers and sisters, please go. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for all of your word. We're especially grateful in times like this for words of challenge. May we not neglect to hear this word of exhortation from the book of Hebrews. This morning, all of our hearts need it. Some of the time. Some of our hearts need it all of the time, and some of us are somewhere in the middle of that, but we all need this word, and we all need to be engaged in the task that this word calls us to. For those of us who are regularly gathering, make us to continue and make us to consider how to stir each other up to do that all the more. And for those of us who are in the habit of not regularly gathering, may we see the seriousness of it, and may we recommit by your grace to take great care to engage your spirit, to engage the gospel, and to engage your word, to be led in along streams of water where our souls can grow and flourish and prosper. Lord, keep us in the greenhouse. Keep us in the greenhouse where we grow and can grow and can grow much faster than if we were out and about in the desert or in separated uh, from the fire. So draw us near to yourself and inflame our hearts. Stir us up even right now for love and good works as we respond to you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.